0: Our sermon this morning is from Romans chapter 1, verses one or verses 16 through 17. So turn to Romans chapter 1 in your Bibles if you have them. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can use the Pew Bible. You can just have the Pew Bible if you want uh, from, the, from the seat in front of you. You can grab it and, and keep it as our gift to you. Um, if you're using a Pew Bible, you can find Romans chapter 1 on page 883. So turn there together. We are working through the book of Romans for pretty much the rest of this year, kind of off and on, and then maybe into... 2023 off and on as as well, and we this is our third sermon, kind of working through this book together. We looked at uh, verses one or chapter one, verses one through seven. Paul's introduction, his greeting, introducing himself to the the church in in Rome. So I'm Paul. I'm an apostle sent by God. I'm a servant of Christ to do His will. Right? He kind of underscores the person of Christ that Jesus is the human son of David. Uh, he's the divine son of God. He underscores the the work of Christ that uh, that God that Jesus died for our sin. And he was resurrected from the dead. He underscores his mission uh, as as a uh, sent out by God to the nations to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. That's kind of uh, verses one through seven. Verses eight through fifteen, Paul talks about his longing to uh, go to Rome to come to this church in person. That he is writing uh, this letter. To, right, so he says. I've longed to see you. I've heard great things about you. I'm praying for you. I'm hoping and and aspiring to come and visit you soon. I want to be a blessing to you. I want to impart a spiritual blessing to you. I want us to be uh, a mutually uh, to to bless one another mutually. I have to I want to impart something to you, but I also want you to impart a spiritual blessing to to me. I want to see people come to know Christ and grow in their faith because that's what God has called me to do uh, as a uh, as a uh, 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 apostle to the the gentiles that's verses eight through fifteen today we 're going to look at Romans one sixteen to seventeen which is um kind of the really the heart the main theme of paul's letter he's going to spend the next the rest of chapter one and the the next uh fifteen chapters after it uh kind of uh explaining and kind of uh helping us to to just unpacking. Um, these two verses, the the gospel of the righteousness of God. So I'm going to pray, we'll, we're going to read through it, then I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to take a few minutes and unpack it together. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I, Paul, am not ashamed of the gospel, and here's why. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless these next few minutes as we Uh, study your word together. We pray that you would use them to sanctify us and make us more like Jesus. We pray that you would convict us of our sin and and assure us of your grace and help us to respond rightly to the, the hearing of your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Again, we kind of touched on that a little bit last week. We're going to look at it a little more closely this week. The whole idea, the whole kind of word on the street was that Paul is ashamed of the the reason why Paul has not yet come to Rome, where we are, where the, where the intelligentsia, right, where the, where the, the cultural elites and the, the, the policy makers and the, the rich and famous rich and famous and influential the reason why he hasn't come to preach to us yet is because he's ashamed of his gospel he's he thinks that it might hold up uh, under the, the all of the barbarians and all of the the less educated people in the far outreaches of the of the empire but he's afraid and doesn't think that it will hold up here he's ashamed to bring his gospel here to the city of Rome and Paul says uh, I'm I'm not Afraid, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. In fact, I want to come and visit the, the church in Rome, the city of Rome. I plan to, I, I long to, and I'm not I'm not ashamed. See the according to the the thinking of the ancient world, Paul's gospel was something to be ashamed of. There's a reason why he has to clarify that he's not a shamed gospel is because the assumption would be after hearing Paul's gospel that that is shameful, right? It's shameful on a it's shameful on a moral level, right? Paul's gospel is effectively a comprehensive, all encompassing admission of one's own moral. Ineptness, right? It's it's this it's this declaration to God, it's a declaration to oneself, it's a declaration to the world and to everyone around you that that I am not good enough, I'm not righteous enough, I'm not moral enough, right? There is a standard that God has called me to live by, and I have failed to meet that standard. I'm not righteous enough to to meet it. Every every other worldview in the ancient world effectively said, you know, here's you, here's the gods, here's the pantheon of gods, here's our god, here's their god, but here's all the gods, and, and here's what the gods demand of you, and now get out there and make it happen, right? Go be good enough, go obey their laws, go offer the sacrifices that they require, go please the gods, make them happy so that they will accept you and bless you. And Paul's gospel said, here's you and here's the one true God, the only God that there is, the only God that exists and and what he demands of you, you can never live up to it. You can never be righteous enough, even at your very best, even when you are as as deserving of God's blessing as you ever will be, you will never deserve god's blessing right the, you'll deserve god's wrath and, and judgment and so you need to trust in christ trust in his finished work his perfect life his sacrificial death so that you can be saved not on the basis of you and your morality but on the basis of christ and his accomplishments and so to accept that and to believe that is effectively and it's like the thing that like every you know like, whenever uh, some corporation issues a public apology, they craft their words very carefully so to have them not amount to an admission of guilt, right? Like, we'll pay this settlement to make it go away, make them sign a non-disclosure agreement, but we're not going to admit that we did anything wrong, you know. That, so, so Paul's gospel was this, like, cards on the table, I'm admitting that I am not moral, and that was shameful, to people in the in the ancient world, nobody wanted to admit that they were not as moral as they needed to be. It was also, it's not just morally shameful; it was intellectually shameful because it just it didn't sound very smart. Paul was an educated person. Paul was intelligent, but Paul's gospel, when he explained it, didn't sound like what was being championed by and kind of you know touted by all of the all of Paul's fellow educated. Right? Here's Paul's gospel, right? There's a person, there's a human being, right? And, and, and you, like, so you, all right, start, you're a person, you're a human being, and, and you uh, are, you are going to, you're going to stand before God at one, at one point. You're going to stand before God, and you need to, uh, be able to, you need to have something to say to God that's going to allow him, that's going to let him allow you into his presence for all of eternity. And so how are you going to, how are you going to prepare for eternity? How are you going to ensure that God will accept you and bless you at the end of this life? Now, the wisdom of the world would take that question and say, well, that's easy, right? There's like we can name any number, we can name thousands of ways that you as a human being, a finite creature can prepare yourself for your eventual encounter with God or with the gods or whatever, right? You can, you know, make a bunch of money and try to buy your way in. You can, you can spend your life networking and then try to call in favors from those people that you have uh, ingratiated yourself to. You can, strategize and figure the, the one thing you, you shouldn't do according to the wisdom of the world is, uh, be caught unprepared, right? Don't be the guy who didn't think, don't be the guy who shows up to the airport without a plane ticket or without your driver's license, right? Don't, don't be caught with unprepared. So we get, again, we can think of any number of ways to prepare for eternity. Just don't be caught. Unpre- and here's, here's Paul's gospel message for how to prepare for eternity. Right, he says, "There's a there's a a, a poor blue collar carpenter peasant from Galilee, the furthest you know furthest uh, away from anywhere influential and well to do that there. Is there, uh, he was a an itinerant preacher. He was homeless. Everyone who's anyone thought that he was crazy." thought that he was a, a lunatic. They dismissed him outright. Eventually that guy, that poor homeless itinerant preacher, carpenter turned itinerant preacher, upset the wrong people and they killed him. And they killed him publicly and they killed him, uh, specifically to embarrass him and humiliate everyone. He hung on a cross. Everyone that walked by laughed at him They were making an example of him. They were were publicly declaring to the whole world, this man hanging on this cross right here, like we won and he lost. He's a loser. We are the winners. We want everyone to see and know by virtue of his hanging here, he's been cursed by God. He's been dismissed by everyone who's anyone in the world. No one will want anything to do with him. And Paul's gospel message was, that's the God. That guy right there is the person that you need to trust in to save. Hitch your wagon to his star because he's going places. More than any righteous deeds that you've ever done, more than anything that you've ever accomplished, you need to identify with and hold fast to that guy. And people in the ancient world would hear that and think, that is outrageous. That's fool. That's a bad strategy. That's a losing strategy. Like, if you if you went to your financial advisor and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to liquidate all of my assets. I'm going to sell my home, retirement accounts, everything that I have. I'm going to take it all out, and I'm going to go bet on a, a basketball. I'm going to go turn on ESPN, and whatever game is on, I'm just going to pick a team at random and bet on it, bet everything that I have on that game. He would say, please don't do that. That is foolish. That is not a wise, sound financial strategy. That's what it looks like to, to entrust your eternity to, to 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 trust this one guy, this crucified man and no one else. You're not hedging your bets. You're not keeping a little bit over here in case that maybe you're wrong and maybe, you know, you can, like, your entire life, your entire eternity is all entrusted to, it's all put in the hands of that one man. Either Jesus saves me or I am done for. According to the wisdom of the world, now and 2,000 years ago, that was foolish and that was was something to be ashamed. It was morally shameful to admit that you're wrong and it was intellectually shameful to believe something as, as seemingly stupid as, as that. So Paul theoretically had every reason to be ashamed and Paul was not ashamed of his, of his gospel. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says, The message of the cross, the gospel that I preach, is foolishness to those who are perishing. The gospel of Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews in their morality. It's it's foolishness to the Gentiles in their intellect and their, their wisdom. Paul's gospel had no weight, no honor, no status, no stature in the Roman corridors of power and influence. And they were ashamed of it. And they thought that Paul had every reason to be ashamed of it. But Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. Here's why. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because for and because you can almost use them interchangeably in these two verses. Not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to save sinners. So, so. My gospel may sound foolish to you, it may, sound, uh, it may sound off-putting to the religious establishment who view themselves as moral and righteous, it may sound stupid to the, the, the people who uh, think of themselves as the intellectual elites, but my gospel is the power of God to save sinners. It is the, it is the means by which the sovereign king of the universe, the God who created you, the God who created everything, the God who has ownership, rights over everything, the most, the most powerful being that could ever be conceived of in the universe, the gospel is how that God accomplishes the most difficult task that there is. The gospel is how uh, the sovereign, omnipotent God of the universe accomplishes that which is utterly impossible. The gospel is how God works to, sit, to, to take a sinful person who has been separated from God because of their sin, who is under the wrath of God because of their sin. The gospel is how God takes that person and reconciles them to himself, brings them into his presence so that they can experience his love and his kindness and enjoy him forever. The gospel is how God does that by his own power. The, the, the salvation of man does not come by the power of man. It does, not by, it does not come by human beings willing it into existence. It doesn't come by human beings uh, pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. It doesn't come by uh, people looking within and manufacturing the strength or the fortitude to accomplish their salvation. It would be the salvation by, by the power of man. But salvation, but the gospel is the power of God for salvation meaning that God does it and only God could do it. Think about the nature, think about the difficulty of salvation, the nature of salvation and how difficult it is and why it requires the power of God to accomplish, right? Think about about the distinct, the disparity between you on the one hand and God on the other hand, right? God is holy, God is righteous, God has a standard of holiness that he demands from his people. Sin is the transgressing of that standard. It's, it's trampling on it, rebelling against God, rejecting God's authority over your life, rejecting God as your father, rejecting God as the, the, the one who loves you and wants to take care of you. It's declaring to God that your life would be better if you were in charge of it than it would be if he was in charge of it. But here's the thing. So if, if, if the, the disparity that exists between you and God is, is God's righteousness and your sin, God is not marginally holy, marginally righteous. The, the, the righteousness of God, the holiness of it is not this measurable amount, it's not a finite amount, the, the holiness of God, the, the righteousness of God is... Incomprehensible. It's limitless. It's it's God is infinitely holy, which means that the separation between God and sinners is not just big; it is infinite. There's no way to describe it. There's no way to even conceive of it. The 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 separation between God and sinners is infinite. the 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 barrier between God and sinners is insurmountable. the The, the task of reconciling God and sinners is. Uh, infinitely impossible. No finite creature could accomplish it. It could, it could literally only be done by a being that could do... It, it could only be done by a being whose omnipotence is bigger than the impossibility of the task in view. Right? The task of reconciling God to sinners is impossible and could therefore only be done by a God who is more omnipotent than that task is impossible, right? There's, there's a lot of religions, a lot of belief systems that are based on the power of man. And Paul says, my gospel is not rooted in the power of man. It's rooted in the, the power, the, the, the difficulty of salvation, the difficulty of reconciling God and man together is directly proportional to how holy God is. The more holy God is, the more difficult it is to reconcile God and man together. The less holy God is, the less difficult it is. God is infinitely holy. Therefore, the task of saving and reconciling God and man together is infinitely difficult. And yet, God's omnipotence, God's ability to do anything, is, is greater than the infinite difficulty of the task at hand of saving sinners. And so that's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the the power of God. Like if the gospel were the power of Paul to save Paul's own self, the power of man to save himself, then it would be embarrassing. It would be shameful, but I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of of God. The world might think that it's shameful, but there's nothing to be ashamed of in trusting a God who can do anything to to save. Think back to the Think back to the illustration about, um, right, you go to the financial advisor and say, I want to take all my money, bet it on a basketball game. So that's stupid. That's foolish. You should be ashamed that you even thought of that. Now, what if the, what if the game that you're betting on, you know, is a, it's a game where you get 10 to 1, you get 100 to 1 odds, right? You get astronomical odds in your favor. And the game you're betting on is my son, Baxter, who's two years old, playing basketball against LeBron James, right? Like that's all of a sudden that like betting everything that I own on LeBron James to beat Baxter in basketball is doesn't sound as foolish as, as just because, because the, the person that you're betting on, the person that you are putting right, kind of. Counting on to accomplish what you need to accomplish is big and strong and, and so strong that it's virtually impossible that he could ever fail. God is infinitely stronger and more powerful than LeBron James is good at basketball. And so, so counting on God, trusting in God to save you is, is infinitely more sensible. Than, than betting on a game a game like that. And so Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because my gospel is, the, is not my power, it's the power of, of God to save sinners. It's the power of God for salvation, and then these four words are really important, to everyone who believes. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There's a lot packed in there. It's easy to Rush past those four words, take them for granted, right? We all probably have verses like um, John three sixteen memorized. So this this idea of of you know anyone who believes can be saved is is uh, seemingly kind of we all know it. But there's a lot being communicated in these four words that is incredibly under, incredibly important to how we understand the nature of salvation, and frankly, is kind of scandalous when, when you think about it, right? Uh, two things that I want to say about these four words, power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The first is its uh, inclusivity. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone. There's, there's no one on the face of the earth. There is no one who has ever lived, there is no one who ever will live, who has ever taken a breath, who is, uh, by virtue of what he has done, is, is disqualified from hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, being saved by God's grace in the gospel, right? right? The, believing the gospel and being reconciled to God through Christ is, is an option that is not only made available to a select few, It's available for anyone and everyone. And that idea, this this inclusive, come one, come all, anyone can know God through the gospel, was offensive to Paul's audience in the first century, right? The The whole thing, especially in the nation of Israel, the whole thing was, we are Like we are Israel, right? We were the Jewish people. We're the special chosen people of God. There's us and there's them, the nations, the Gentiles. There's the the haves and the have-nots, right? God didn't make a covenant with them, the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the, the, you know, God made a covenant with Abraham, our father, not theirs, right? We were the people who were given the word of God. We've possessed the word of God. We've guarded the word of God. Salvation is for us. The part of the daily prayer for a Jewish man in Israel in the first century, he would wake up and say, God, I thank you for not making me a slave or a gentile or a woman. Because, because their understanding was the special privileges of like the most elite circle you can be in is, is that of a of a you know a, a free Jewish. Male. That's the person who can know God unlike anyone else can. He can enjoy the privileges of salvation unlike anyone else can. And then, the first century, Jesus comes onto the scene and starts saying things like, I have other sheep who are not of this flock, but I must bring them in also. And they will listen to my voice, and then we will all be one flock under one shepherd. Jesus starts speaking to Gentiles and Samaritans and commending and women and, and commending them for their faith and healing them and telling them that they can be saved. And then Paul starts saying that he is an apostle sent out by Jesus, not specifically to the nation of Israel, but to the, the Gentiles. The, the, the gospel that Paul is preaching is incredibly inclusive, radically inclusive, scandalously inclusive inclusive, right? It would have been met by objections. You know, wait a minute, Paul, What are you saying that anyone can be saved and reconciled to God through Christ? Yes, that's what I'm saying, right? Even uh, people that aren't Israelites, people that aren't Jewish, yes, even people that, that worship other gods, even people that are from other religions and other nations that are not, uh, you know, covenant, they're, they're not in the covenant people, yes, even if people are immoral, engaging in all sorts of sins and bizarre behaviors, even they can still turn to Christ and receive the same salvation that we get as the covenant people of God. Yes, the, the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone, for salvation to, there, there, there's, there's no one that is so bad that they cannot be saved by the gospel of God. There's, there's no one who has run so far from God that they are outside of the reach of God's grace, right? Prior to Christ, prior to the preaching of Paul, the understanding, albeit erroneous, but, but the, the understanding nevertheless was that, that God, the, the door to experience the favor of God, the blessing of God, the salvation of God is, is barely cracked open. It's just open enough so that uh, the, the the nation of Israel can enjoy the blessings of God. And if anyone else wants to get in on it, if anyone else wants to experience any of the blessing of God that we have a monopoly on, they have to come through us, they have to ask us, we are the the arbiters of whether they get to experience any of God's favor and blessing and salvation or not and, and when jesus comes and when paul comes that door is is flung wide open so that anyone from anywhere can turn to, to, to can come to god through faith in christ the gospel is for everyone so the first thing we see in these four words is the inclusivity of the gospel it's the power of god for salvation to everyone Next thing we see is just as radical and just as scandalous, which is the exclusivity of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, right? Meaning that there's a specific, definite, prescribed way by which sinners must come into the presence of a holy God. It must be done through Christ, It it, it must be done through faith in Christ, turning from your sin, and trusting in Jesus. There's no such thing as being saved apart from trusting in Christ. John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Acts chapter 4. Salvation can be found in no one else. There is one name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The gospel is inclusive in that uh, it is available to anyone and it's exclusive in that uh, the only way that you can enjoy the blessings of the gospel is through trusting in Christ. And the the irony is that the exclusivity of the gospel, again, is just as radical and just as scandalous as the inclusive, right? If If you were to go to the public square today, tell people that you believe in Jesus and that you believe him to save you from your sins, that probably won't raise too many concerns. But if you go to the public square and say, not just me, but you need to, to trust in Christ. You, right, you need to trust in Christ so that you can be saved from your sins. Jesus is not just my savior, but you need Jesus to be your savior. It's not, you know, I do my thing, you do your thing. There's many paths up the mountain that all arrive at the same summit, right? It's not, It's the, the, the gospel is that there is one person who can save sinners. There's one man whose work is sufficient to save sinners. Anything else is useless. Every other religion, belief system, religious guru, apart from Christ, all you have is a a bunch of blind, broken sinners trying to reach out to God and failing to do so. If you take that message into the public square, that will be as scandalous the people in the public square, as Paul's message of inclusivity would have been to to the nation of of Israel, right? No No one wants to hear a gospel message that is inclusive when its inclusivity includes people that they don't like. When it includes people that they look down on, when it includes people that they despise, when it includes people that they don't want to be associated with. No one likes an inclusive gospel when it includes that. And no one wants to hear a gospel message that is exclusive when its exclusivity implies that they themselves might not be good enough, might not be as good as they thought they were, that maybe their beliefs and lifestyle choices are not valid. So an inclusive gospel is scandalous, and an exclusive gospel is scandalous. The idea that God can save anyone, including people that you think are bad, people that don't agree with you on your politics, people whose sexual orientation is different than yours, people that you think are racist, right? The idea that that God's gospel might include anyone and, and everyone is scandalous, and the idea that sinners need to believe in Jesus in order to be saved, that salvation doesn't come because you're good enough or because you're sincere enough, but rather it comes because you trust in Christ, is equally scandalous, right? The the idea that the wrath of God is coming against humanity for their sin, and you either stand on your own and be crushed by it, or you hide in Christ so that he can take it for you, that idea is is scandalous. And so Paul is saying four, four short little words. He's saying the gospel is the power of God for salvation that is both inclusive, it's available to everyone, and it's exclusive. You must trust in Christ in order to be a participant in it. He says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul just got finished saying that the, the, the gospel of God, right, that, that the, the gospel makes salvation available to anyone and ever, and it's not just for the righteous. It's not just for the, the people of Israel. He just got finished saying that Israel does not have a monopoly on God's grace and the Gentiles can't experience it and all that's true. And now he's saying that there is, in a sense, a priority that the Jewish people uh, experience in the, the, the redemptive plan of God. Some sense of, there's some sense of firstness that the Jewish people experience and have over and against the Gentiles. No, here's what that doesn't mean. Right, if, if you read through the rest of chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, you're going to see very clearly that all people, Jews, Gentiles, everyone is condemned by God. Right? The, the, the firstness that Paul is referring to here doesn't mean that that Jewish people are somehow less sinful than the rest of humanity, or they are less culpable for their own sin than the rest of humanity. It doesn't mean that they are saved any differently than the rest of humanity. We're all sa- right? Romans 1-3 through 3 makes it very clear that all people, Jews and Gentiles, are equally guilty before God. Romans 4-5 through 5 makes it very clear that all people, Jews and Gentiles, are all saved in the exact same way, by trusting in Christ, Ephesians 2 makes it clear that uh, the, the firstness, the priority that's in view here doesn't have to do, it's not like Jewish people receive a salvation that's better than Gentiles. Ephesians 2 says, you Gentiles, you were separated from Christ, you were excluded from Israel, you were strangers to the covenants, you had no hope in the world, but now in Christ, you who were formerly far off have been brought near Right? You now have access in one spirit to the Father. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are all part of God's household, singular. So, so the, the, the household of God includes Jews and Gentiles. They, they experience, that, right, they, they're equally guilty before God. They experience salvation in the same way, and they receive the same blessings of salvation. Jews and Gentiles are all alike and without, without distinction in those ways. But the firstness that you hear, the priority that Jews have or experience in terms of how salvation is given to humanity has to do with the, the fact that they are, are, yeah, for centuries now, have been the chosen nation of God. Call, God called Abraham. They are Abraham's descendants. God gave his word to the nation of Israel at Sinai. He revealed it to them. He entrusted it to them. He tasked them with guarding it and with mediating it to the rest of the world. Jesus himself wasn't a Gentile. He was a Jewish man. If you zoom out and kind of look at the meta narrative of redemption in the Bible, it's clear that it it starts with the nation of Israel and then flows out from the nation of Israel out to the, the nations, out to the, the Gentiles. And so... There is a sense in which Jewish people have a priority in salvation, that that the Word of God was given to them and then they were tasked with mediating it to the world. It doesn't mean that they're saved any differently or that they enjoy any different blessings of salvation, but it means that the Word of God, the Gospel was given to them and then they were entrusted with, they were tasked with proclaiming it to the world. So, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jews, also to the Greek, for in it, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So Paul's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why not, Paul? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Well, why is that, Paul? How is it that the gospel can save sinners? Well, the reason is, verse 17, because the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. The reason why the gospel saves sinners is because it reveals the righteousness of God. Right, so God is altogether righteous, like we've already established. He's holy. He is. He is uh, the epitome of rightness and and never being wrongness. Right, there, God is utterly incompatible with evil and with with sin. There's an unbreakable law of the universe that says that God is holy. God is righteous. God cannot be mixed with, God cannot be in the presence of that which is unholy or unrighteous. So the phrase, the righteousness of God, in one sense, means how righteous God is, right? The, how righteous God is is revealed in Paul's gospel. But there's another sense, right? That there's another sense that, that the righteousness of God doesn't merely refer to how righteous God is, But it refers to the righteous stand. The righteousness of God is the righteous standard that is required by God in order to be accepted by Him and to stand before Him. That's the the righteousness of God. There's a a 19th century pastor, Scottish pastor, named William Cunningham, who said, The righteousness of God is that righteousness which God's righteousness requires Him to. To require. The righteousness of God is the righteousness that God's righteousness requires God to require. So there's a standard of behavior, a standard of moral perfection that God is required uh, to require of his, his people. It's not it's not negotiate it's not it's not arbitrary. God doesn't make it up. If you, go, if you go to buy a pair of shoes, if you walk into the shoe store and say, I'd like a pair of shoes, size 10. The clerk's not going to say, "Well, excuse—I didn't realize the Queen of England just walked in that it demands a size ten pair of shoes, like awfully demanding of you that you will only accept that and nothing else." He'd say, "Hey, I'm—I don't like it any more than you do. That's how big my feet are. Like I can't—I didn't do—I didn't—I I did not do i did not i, I did not ask for it. My—if I, I could ask for shoes, any shoes size six to fifteen, I would." But I can't because my shoes are size 10. Nine is too small. Eleven is too big. That's just the way it is. My, the size of my feet require me to get size 10 shoes and nothing else. That's how it is with the, with the righteousness. The right, with God's, God's standard of righteousness that's required to come into his presence is not something that he made up. It's not something that he decided on at some point in eternity past. It is an expression of who God is. It's a function of who God is. God is righteous, and therefore, there is a standard of righteousness that's required to be near God, to come into the presence of God, and to be accepted by God. John Stott says, The righteousness of God is God's righteous initiative in reconciling sinners to himself by bestowing on them a righteousness which is not their own but his. The righteousness of God is God's just justification of the unjust. The righteousness of God is his righteous way of pronouncing the unrighteous righteous. In which he both demonstrates his righteousness and he gives his righteousness to us. God has done this through Christ, the righteous one who died for the unrighteous. And he does it by faith when we put our trust in him and cry out to him, for mercy. So Paul says, In my gospel, the righteousness of God, the, the the righteous standard that God's righteousness requires him to require is revealed. It's uncovered. It's it's disclosed. God shows it to you and he, he gives it to you. That's what's unique about Paul's gospel as opposed to any other gospel, right? Other religions, the 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 stream of righteousness travels the other way right other religions the it's it's the the righteousness of the righteousness of man is revealed from man to God you die before God and you put your cards on the table and you reveal to God how righteous you are how righteous you have been cross your fingers hope that you are good enough to have um, to have secured God's favor and blessing. God, here's my righteousness. It's mine. I'm revealing it to you. That's every other worldview. Christianity says it's God's righteousness. It comes from God to man. God reveals it to man. God imputes it to man. God credits you with the righteousness that he gave to you. Jesus lived the perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. And therefore he fulfilled God's righteous requirements and he gave you his righteousness. Right? It's not try your best to be righteous and reveal your righteousness to God. It's it's Jesus was righteous, Jesus reveals his righteousness to you, he imputes it to you, and then God accepts you on the basis of that righteousness, which is why it's called a gospel. Good news. The Greek word gospel means good news. It's it's good news that Jesus died for you and that Jesus's righteousness can be imputed to you apart from your earning it or deserving it. That is good news. Other religions that say try harder, do better, be as righteous as you can in the hope that you can uh, earn eternal life is not that's not good news. That is terrible news. That's depressing news and it's soul crushing. Right? But the good news is that God gives us His righteousness. When in the the word gospel in the world evangelism, evangel in the ancient world, when you when when a civilization, when a city or a nation would send their army out to go fight a battle, it's it's not not pretty. It's not it's not you know for polite company. But basically, they would go out and fight a battle, and whichever army won, they would go to the the country that they just conquered, and they would just take everything. Take all of the gold, all of the treasures, take all of the women, take all of the children, burn everything down. It was pretty ruthless, kind of dog-eat-dog world. And so if you sent your army out to battle, the women and children would stay home, and they would expect, we're either going to be greeted by the other nation's army coming to kill us all and enslave us all, or... We will be greeted by a messenger from our own army, right? When our own army goes to take whatever they want, the spoils of victory from the other nation that they just defeated, they're going to send one guy back called a messenger, called an evangelist, send him back to our home country. And he comes back and he says, I've got good news. We won. Our, our army won, they are currently gathering up all of the valuable spoils of victory that they can carry and they're going to your husbands are coming back to you, your fathers are coming back to you and we're all going to be better off than we were before this military campaign began. Good news. Paul saying, I'm preaching a gospel of good news. I have good news that the, the battle has been won, that the, your salvation has been accomplished, and he's coming back and he's bringing with him the spoils of victory of having defeated sin and Satan. Right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's good news. It's the power of God to save sinners, anyone and everyone who trusts in Christ. Right? It's, it's the revelation of the righteous standard of God that God then gives to us so that we can be accepted on its behalf. And how is that righteous standard imputed to humanity? How does God give us the righteousness that his righteousness requires him to require? He gives it to us through faith, right? It's revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So, so it's not, that, it's not that the righteousness of God is imputed to anyone and everyone without distinction, that, that no one, right? there's, there's no regard to who you are, what you believe, how you respond to the gospel. That would be universalism, right? But rather, Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed and imputed to sinners through Christ's perfect life, sacrificial death, and on the basis of their trusting it, it's revealed from faith for faith. This could also be translated as... Uh, revealed um, beginning with and ending with faith, or, or from faith from first to last, right? It's kind of a strange, kind of an ambiguous uh, Greek term, but the idea is that that the Christian life, accepting Christ, receiving the grace of God, and having the righteousness of Christ imputed to you is something that is done, it, it starts by faith, it begins with faith, and it ends with faith, With faith, right? People tend to think the gospel is how you become a Christian, trusting in Christ is how you become a Christian, and then from that point forward, you live by works, right? You go to church, you read your Bible, you say your prayers, you give money. That's how you you become a Christian by grace, you stay a Christian by works. It's grace on the way in, and then it's a meritocracy once we're all here. But Paul is saying, The the Christian life, the imputed righteousness of Christ, is received and kept and persevered in by faith. It starts with faith and ends with faith. It's faith from the first to the the last. So the people in Galatia believed and struggled with. Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, Who has bewitched you? It It was before your very eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now let me ask you a question did you receive the spirit initially by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer, of course, is by hearing with faith. And he says, well, then why are you so foolish? After beginning by the spirit, are you now trying to finish by the flesh, by by works? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The idea is that the Christian life starts and ends with faith. We receive Christ by trusting in him and we persevere in the faith for all of our lives by trusting in him. If you're, if you're not a Christian, you can become one right now by trusting in Jesus, turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus. And if you are a Christian, if you've been a Christian for years or, or decades, you can persevere as a Christian, in the exact same way that the unbeliever comes a Christian. By trusting in Christ, continuing to trust in Christ, continuing to turn from your sin, continuing to look to Christ in faith, and continuing to trust Jesus to save you. The righteousness of God begins with and ends with faith. It's revealed from faith for faith. And then Paul ends by quoting Habakkuk chapter 2, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Book of Habakkuk. The prophet Habakkuk asks God, essentially he asks God, Why do you allow bad things to happen to good people? Why do you allow good things to happen to bad people? God, I'm looking around. I'm a prophet in Israel. Why are you allowing uh, why are you allowing the, the Babylonian Empire to, to besiege and dominate and destroy your people? Right? Why are you allowing this to happen? Why are you blessing the people of Babylon? And why are you hurting your people in Israel? And God's response is, what you're seeing now in this Babylonian captivity is not the way that it's always going to be. Babylon is prideful. Babylon is wicked. And in time, they are going to fall. And the righteous, humble, godly people, the the remnant of righteous, godly people within Israel They are going to persevere. They're going to be preserved. I'm going to take care of them. The righteous will live by faith. The people in Israel who trust in me, trust in my promises, will live and they will be preserved. So Paul's quoting Habakkuk to basically say, the gospel that I'm preaching might sound new. It might sound novel. It might sound strange. It might sound like a departure from what you've heard the religious teachers in Israel preaching up until now. But it's not. It's not that the religious establishment in Israel in the first century is the rightful heir to the prophets of the Old Testament, and Paul is preaching a new maverick gospel over here. It's that the the religious establishment in Israel in the first century has, they've perverted the gospel that the prophets taught in the Old Testament, and Paul has recovered the true gospel that's been taught all along, right, that sinful man is saved by trusting in God, trusting in his grace, and in his his mercy. That's what Habakkuk taught. That's what every prophet in the Old Testament taught. And that's what Paul is teaching. I didn't come up with a new gospel. I simply recovered what was there all along, but has kind of been um, perverted in recent past. Paul's not ashamed of his gospel because it's the power of God to save sinners. Anyone and everyone who trusts in Christ, Jews and Gentiles alike. Paul's gospel reveals the righteous standard that God requires to be saved. And then Paul's gospel imputes that righteousness to sinners on by the virtue of their faith in Christ, as they trust in Christ and persevere in the faith. The same gospel that's been preached from the beginning of, of time. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you that you have given us the righteousness that is needed to stand before you through faith in Christ. We thank you for the power of God to save sinners. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to persevere in the faith, to persevere in turning from our sin and trusting in you and walking with you and glorifying you. It's in Christ's name that we pray.